1: I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Second Battle of El Alamein, alongside Stalingrad and Midway, is taught in schools the world over as one of the turning points of the Second World War, or, depending on who you talk to, the turning point. But what led to that battle? How did Rommel's army push so far across North Africa? And why did he push one time too many? What were those in Egypt and the Middle East, and not just the British overseers, thinking about the coming invasion? War of Shadows, Codebreakers, Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East, written by Gershom Gorenberg and published by Public Affairs, tells the story leading to the British army holding off the Nazis at El Alamein, a battle not just of soldiers and tanks, but spies and codebreakers. Gershom Gorenberg's previous books are The Unmaking of Israel, The Accidental Empire, Israel and the Birth of Settlement, 7, 7, 7, 7, and The End of Days, Fundamentalism and the Struggle for the Temple Mount. He also co-authored The Jerusalem Report*, 1996 biography of Yitzhak Rabin Shalom Friend, winner of the National Jewish Book Award. Gershom is a columnist for The Washington Post and has written for The Atlantic Monthly, The New York Times Magazine, New York Review of Books, The New Republic, and in Hebrew for Haaretz. Today, Gershom and I will talk about the years preceding the battle for Egypt, those who broke Enigma, the spies who unlocked their enemy's secrets, and the troubled relations between nominal allies. So Gershom, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's kind of start with the big picture kind of before the war starts. What's the state of the Middle East? Who's in control of these different parts of North Africa and the Middle East? Um, And also, what about about Palestine? I know, big question, but kind of of, going to set the geopolitical scene,
0: as it were. Well, If you're looking at the Middle East, uh, there were two main foreign powers that had spheres of influence there, that is to say, France and Britain. Um, Egypt and Iraq were nominally independent, but were very much under uh, British influence, still very much subservient to Britain. Palestine, uh, which was officially a mandate that was supposed to become independent, uh, was for all practical purposes ruled as a crown colony from London. Uh, Lebanon and Syria were still under French control. One big exception to this, which became critical during the war, was that Libya uh, was a Italian colony. And that became terribly important because it became the base for, Lib- for Italy's attempt to expand its empire in Africa. So your book is
1: driven by the story of code breaking, you know, breaking access code breakers, breaking allied codes, allied code breakers, breaking access codes and, you know, espionage and all that. So but could you tell us more about the process of code breaking and what did code breakers at the time have to do?
0: Well, let's start with the problem of the code maker, which is that war by world war ii was dependent on long distance communications by radio if you wanted to send messages by radio um, the enemy could pick them up so you had to send them in some form of you had to encode them encrypt them in some sort of way so that the enemy couldn't read them and traditional methods of doing that weren't good enough especially if you were sending massive amounts of information Uh, the traditional methods were either to have a code where you substitute you know, a line of characters, five numbers or five letters for each word. You have a big book that says, you know, tank will be A, B, C, D, E, and ship will be Z, Y, whatever. Or you use a cipher in which each letter uh, is substitu- another letter is substituted for each letter. And each of these by World War II was these these were things that were very easy to break, um, I mean, especially a cipher. Uh, you know, if if Z is the most common letter in the message that you receive, you know that Z stands for E because E is the most common language in English, or for that matter, German or or whatever. So you needed something more sophisticated. And the methods that were invented before World War II, and in particular the method that became crucial, was to come up with some kind of machine that essentially changed the cipher with each letter that you that you typed into the machine. So You might, in the case of the of of the crucial machine, the one they used by the Germans called the Enigma. You might type in, let's say, you just, you know, you're testing out your machine, and you type in e e e e e, and it comes out as z w x y h. And the next time you type it in, it comes out as something different because the way the machine worked was that um, you hit uh, a letter on the keyboard, an electronic message went through a tangle of wires inside of three constantly moving wheels and lit up lights associated with letters on a, on a board on the machine. And each time you typed a letter, the wheels moved, and essentially the cipher changed with each letter. Um, and the only way you could read that message is if you had another machine that was built exactly the same way, wired precisely the same way, and that had started at the same starting positions. Now we get to the crazy part. There were, uh, I'm not going to explain all the math behind this, but there were the number of ways to wire, potentially to wire an Enigma machine is a number that you would write by writing five and then writing 92 zeros after it. it. Just this astronomic number. And the number of ways, different kinds of settings that you could use at any given time added up to something like 150 quintillion. So the Germans were absolutely certain that nobody could ever break this—you uh, know—figure out what the messages were sent in, in, in this machine. That was—it turned out to be one of their greatest mistakes of the war. Um, <clears throat> so the codebreaker is presented with this stream of letters that makes no sense, and the codebreaker wants to figure out. Once they understood that there was a machine involved how it was wired, and what the settings are. Um, Those seem to be impossible tasks. But in 1932, a young Polish mathematician working for Poland's military intelligence came up with a set of equations that allowed him to figure out the wiring in the Enigma machine. This was such an insane feat that even his allies, the French and the British, whatever, didn't never believed that he'd actually figure this out himself. They were sure that the Poles had received a stolen machine or something like that because it was such a daunting task. But he in fact managed to figure out the wiring of Enigma. And then he and two other young mathematicians working for Polish military intelligence came up with a method of quickly checking enough potential settings to figure out which one would have produced a message that suddenly turned from a stream of letters into an intelligible set of words. The the original message, something that you could read. Um, And at first they did this in secret for for the Polish government. Uh, But as the war approached, the Germans started making the problem more and more difficult. They made changes in the machine. Um, They started using different settings for each branch of the military. They started changing the settings every day. The Poles, you know, this team of three young guys couldn't keep up with this. And in July of 1939, they shared the secret with the British. So everything that you've ever seen about, you know, imitation game, Alan Turing, all that stuff about the British breaking enigma, uh, you have to understand, begins with the work of the Poles beforehand. The British built on the work of... The Polish mathematician's name was Marian Ryuski. Everything that Alan Turing and his colleagues did was, was built on the work of this one uh young mathematician who remained virtually anonymous in history.
1: Yeah, it really kind of tackles the the myth, some of the myths that have really grown around Bletchley Park, huh?
0: Yeah, well the 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 the, the sort of Hollywood presentation, you know, wants you to see this in in the <clears throat> classic frame of one brave man against the world, one, you know, Alan Turing um, breaks enigma by himself in the movie, he builds the machine himself, all these sort of things. In, in fact, Turing and other incredible code breakers at Bletchley Park built on the work of the Poles and then took it for, further. And what Turing did working together with another British mathematician named Gordon Welchman was to create a better kind of machine that could search through all the possible settings and figure out uh, which one had been used to send a particular message. Their challenge was that the way that Turing's machine worked is that you had to make a very accurate guess of a phrase that appeared in the message that you were trying to decode. The machine depended on that phrase to work. So at the beginning of the war, they used other methods. They managed to find a few phrases that repeated in Air Force messages, and they could use that with the machine to continue breaking new messages. But each time they tried to break into the Enigma settings used by a different branch of the military, they had to figure out what phrase or phrases might be in the message in order to set up this a uh, brilliant machine that Turing and Welchman had created. So that's about
1: allied codebreakers breaking Axis codes. But obviously the Axis have their own codebreakers. They're trying to break allied codes. And you kind of work the story about espionage and codebreaking nearly leading to a Nazi conquest of the Middle East. Um, first of all, why is that? How did, how did codebreaking play a role in the North Africa campaign? Um, and what would have been the potential consequences of of such an invasion, if had it succeeded?
0: Okay, well, the North African campaign began uh, in the summer of 1940, end of the summer of 1940, when Italian, the Italian army based in Libya invaded Egypt. Uh, Mussolini, the Italian dictator, had this grandiose dream of recreating the Roman Empire, and it was going to start by conquering Egypt. Um, his army advanced a few miles into Egypt, got stuck, the British launched a counterattack and pushed the Italians back into Libya. Now the Italians were in trouble. And in early 1941, uh, Hitler decided that he couldn't afford to let the Italians lose Libya because that posed a threat that Britain could invade Europe from the south. So he sent his favorite general, Erwin Rommel, to, uh, to Libya to strengthen the Italian defense. And Rommel instead went on the offensive and was uh, very successful, um, which started creating the myth of Rommel as the desert fox, as the military genius who always rushed forward and always outfoxed the, the British and whatever. Um, this story there is, that that mythology misses some very important things. First of all, the first time that Rommel launched his offensive it was at the time that britain was also trying to defend greece and the best of the british forces in north africa had been moved to greece so the resistance to rama the defense against rama was very very weak Um, then there was another back and forth and finally um, in late 1941 rama launched another offensive by this time the Axis had an incredible espionage source in, uh, in North Africa. They were getting absolutely superb intelligence that seemed to come directly from British headquarters in Cairo. They were getting information about the movement of troops, including, for instance, they were getting information that the British were moving airplanes and tanks and forces to the Far East because this is the end of 1941, Japan has just entered the war. It's uh, invaded Hong Kong. It's, it's, it's going to try to capture Singapore. Um, the war in the Far East has a direct impact on the war in, in the Middle East. And Rommel is getting daily reports about all these forces being withdrawn. So again, he's able to launch an attack and push forward in, in Libya. All this contributes to this myth of Rommel as as the great general. Um, And finally, in the spring of 1942, again, dependent on this incredible intelligence, Rommel launches a new attack. And uh, he knows where the British forces are. He knows where their weaknesses are. uh, And when he his army succeeds in taking the key Libyan port of Tobruk from the British, he receives a message from what was constantly referred to in the the German intelligence messages as as the good source. The good source says, um, if Rommel wants to conquer the Nile Delta, this is his opportunity. So Rommel, who had the character of a compulsive gambler, of somebody who thinks that the odds don't quite apply to him in any sense, in any way, uh, gets this message. He's like a gambler who's just read the cards of his opponent. And uh, ignoring his previous orders, going straight up to Mussolini and Hitler to ask permission, invades invades Egypt. And it seems that the um, the British army is a state of collapse, and In Berlin, they are expecting that Rommel will take Egypt, will take the Suez Canal, crucial strategic location that's essential for the connection between Britain and India, will push further into the Middle East, into Asia, will reach the oil fields of Iraq and Persia, um, and by reaching the shore of the Indian Ocean, will also allow Germany direct Communication with Japan, thereby strengthening the entire Axis uh, front against the Allies. What happens at this incredibly fraught moment is that the British succeeded in figuring out what the good source was and silencing it. Um, In fact, the timing is even more amazing. All of the information that Rommel had received said that the British would mount their final defense of Egypt at this little port on the Mediterranean coast called Mersa Matruh. And that's the information that Rommel was getting. The source in Cairo went silent. At most a day, possibly hours before, the British commander Claude Auchinleck decided that there was a better spot, a strategically more defensible spot, at a place called El Alamein, closer to um, closer to Alexandria. That the British army would fall further back and mount their defense at this spot, where the topography made it very difficult for Rommel to mount a flanking action to go around the British army. So. When Rommel's forces rushed through Marzammaru, they thought they'd won because they had their their incredible source had gone silent. And then the British mounted their defense at uh, at El Alamein, and uh, Rommel was it was what you could call instead of a surprise attack, a surprise defense. Rommel was stopped; his supply lines were stretched out terribly, and he could advance no further. So the Changing of the balance of forces in the intelligent battle, in the battle over information, directly preceded and led to the change of the balance of forces in the battlefield. Intelligence was the key.
1: I do want to talk a little bit about 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 Rommel quickly, and I know there's every there, there are books about him. Everyone's kind of hashed out his his biography and and the quote unquote ways his legacy has been used since then i i would like to note that um that tv tropes which is a website that kind of lists all the tropes in media has a page called magnificent bastard and the quote at the top is the patent quote about rommel from the movie i should say not a real world quote but obviously i mean your your book kind of gets into rommel as a compulsive gambler like he's using that an image i wonder if you might kind of just go a little bit say a little bit about kind of what your take on rommel is after kind of doing your research and writing this book.
0: Yeah, after living with Rama, as it were, for a few years while while writing this book. Look, he was an extremely daring uh, general. And at first, many of those bets uh, paid off. As I've said, uh, they paid off at points where his opponents were particularly weak, and in some cases where he knew about that weakness. Um, as a general, his uh, fatal flaw which was magnified by the war in the desert, was a lack of attention to logistics, to supply lines. And when you're talking about the war in North Africa, supply lines were even more important than they would be elsewhere, because even the water had to be brought forward to the soldiers at the front. And the supply lines were hundreds of miles long, and there were very few ports available to bring uh, supplies from, from Europe. And by rushing so far ahead, he stretched those supply lines to the point that it was very difficult to get supplies to his forces. And in, in fact, when he invaded Egypt and, and got to El Alamein, his expectation was that he was going to quickly get to the, you know, one of the best ports in North Africa, to Alexandria, and then it would be easy to be resupplied. And instead, he was stopped a hundred kilometers short of Alexandria, and his supply lines were stretched hundreds of miles back. So this ignoring of the supply situation was. Uh, his his fatal flaw as a as a general. Besides that, the mythology likes to present Rommel as um, as it were as a good German, a German patriot, but not a Nazi. Um, in fact, Rommel's own letters showed that he worshipped Hitler at least until very late in the war. There's a, a whole debate about whether he finally broke with Hitler or whether uh, somebody. Uh, falsely said that, that Rommel was part of the coup attempt against Hitler, but for most of the war, for most of his career, Rommel was completely in Hitler's camp, completely worshipped Hitler. Rommel himself wrote a memoir before he died in 1944, a memoir of the battles in North Africa called War Without Hate. You know, It was a description as if the soldiers were involved in some particularly extreme team sport on this empty playing field called North Africa, or to use a different metaphor, as if North Africa were just a sea. And it was like naval forces battling each other with no civilians around. But that picture is completely false. Um, You can only maintain that picture if essentially you blind yourself to the fact that people, civilians, real human beings. Lived in North Africa. That there were towns in Libya. That of course there were huge cities and an immense population in uh, in Egypt that was threatened by the Axis. Um, just to give one example, the, the town of Benghazi, the crucial town of Benghazi in Libya, changed hands five times during the war. Um, it was completely demolished. Every civilian living there was, you know, suffered greatly or died because of the, the battles over this place. There, um, there was this idea that it was just armies is, is, is foolish beyond that the Italian rulers of Libya with the full uh, cooperation and encouragement of Rommel and his staff took extreme measures against anybody that they suspected of collaborating with the British. And one of their punishments was hanging up suspected collaborators by a butcher's hook through their jaw. For instance, I'm, I'm sorry to use such graphic images, but it just gives you an idea of what they were doing. And The Italians were sending the Jewish community of Libya to a concentration camp in in the desert. Um, When Rommel advanced into Egypt, the SS, the uh, branch of the German military that was directly responsible for carrying out genocide, created a mobile murder squad that would be attached to Rommel's forces and that was supposed to start by murdering the Jews of Egypt and then uh, when Rommel advanced as they expected him to do so into Palestine, where half a million or more Jews uh, were living, the expectation is that the SS would carry out genocide against the Jews in, in Palestine. So this whole image that Rommel created for himself before his death of, of, of just fighting a, you know, a, a war between soldiers, a war without hate, is uh, completely untrue. It's a dangerous myth, and it's also an extremely Eurocentric myth, and it's one that unfortunately continues to be repeated until this day.
1: Um, your your mention of kind of the the civilians that were affected are 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 a good is a good segue to a question I want to make sure I ask because I want to make sure we're not talking about Europeans the whole time, um, which is uh, you know as this is happening you know, what do the Egyptians, the Arabs, those living in Palestine, how are they viewing um, the potential invasion by, by the Nazi forces?
0: Well, when we talk about Egypt, um, I want to uh, separate this on, on uh, between the elite, which is, you know, as a historian, that's the part that the people who, whose views are easiest to find because they were literate and left documents and diaries and memoirs and whatever. And here you find a lot of divisions. Um, By the time the war broke out, Britain had been ruling Egypt directly or indirectly for nearly 60 years. And there was tremendous anti-British feeling in in Egypt. So there was a portion of the Egyptians, um, particularly junior officers in the army, uh, men whose names we would run into later in history, like Anwar El sadat Gamal Abdel Nasser, and others, looked at the axis and they said my enemy's enemy is my friend my enemy is the british my enemy's enemy is the axis so the axis is going to liberate us from from the british um major mistake the axis had no intention of liberating anybody um on the level of politics there were great divisions in in egypt about how to relate to the war and the result of those divisions was Even when the war was going on on Egyptian soil, Egypt itself never declared war and its army did not directly go into action against the invaders. It was as if Egypt related to the war as if it was a battle between imperial powers that just happened to be taking place on uh, Egyptian soil. Now, when Rommel started getting close to the major cities of Egypt, to the Nile Valley, to Alexandria and Cairo, a certain level of panic did set in, especially among the elites. And and we have very clear pictures from a multitude of sources of how the better off people in Cairo and Alexandria were seeking every possible way of of getting out. Um, Ships leaving the Canal Zone area packed with Egyptians fleeing to South Africa, uh, people trying to get on the train to Palestine or the train uh, southward that would eventually Uh, be the beginning of the voyage to Sudan in order to not fall into, um, not be in another country conquered by the Nazis. There were runs on the banks. Um, Essentially, the picture of Cairo at the beginning of July 1942, on the eve of what was expected to be the Nazi conquest, is the picture that you would have also seen in Paris or in Belgrade or any of the other cities that were that were conquered by the Germans. Um, In Palestine, certainly among the Jews, um, the level of fear was obviously greater. Uh, They knew that they had a tremendous amount to fear from uh, from the Nazis. The organized Jewish community in Palestine, despite deep disagreements with the the British on other issues, uh, came out fully in support of the British war effort. There was a massive recruitment drive for the British army. Um there was a small Jewish force in Palestine that was trained to be for guerrilla warfare after the Nazi conquest if if Germany succeeded in conquering Palestine and the the crazy thing about all of this is that they didn't know half of it because at this time uh word of what was going on in Europe of the genocide going on in Europe had not yet gotten out so with all of the fear that the Jews in the Middle East and particularly in Palestine felt uh they did not fully understand how directly all of their lives uh were threatened by by the German advance and elsewhere in the Middle East again there were there were divisions there were generalizations about who Arabs supported um don't hold up you know there were uh, by one estimate, 12,000 Palestinian Arabs who, who, uh, who volunteered for the British Army. There were other Palestinian Arabs who were hoping for an Axis victory again on this theory of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Uh, essentially, the division, let, let me sum it, sum it up this way. The division was between people who thought my enemy's enemy is my friend and people who realized that my enemy's enemy is a greater enemy.
1: So I think I have one more question kind of about about the history um, of your book, uh, and I'd like to talk about the relationship between um, London and Washington, um, which seems to be kind of a far cry from the very close special relationship we see today with intelligence sharing and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, both seem to spend a lot of time spying on each other uh, as much as they spend <laughs> spying on the Axis. Uh, they're constantly mad at each other. They're annoyed at each other. Um, the British don't tell the Americans certain things because uh, they don't want to reveal that they've been spying on them. Um, so I guess, could you, maybe it's kind of the last kind of history focused question um, of of the interview. Uh, could you tell us more about about, about the relationship between London and, and Washington during this period?
0: It was, let's call it a difficult romance. Um, one of the mistakes people make when they look at history is reading previous events through the lens of later events. So we're used to seeing the great, you know, English-speaking alliance against the Axis, the United States and Britain and Britain's dominions, uh, all united against against uh, uh, Germany and Italy and, for that matter, Japan. Um, and that's a good picture if you're looking at the end of the war. But that relationship had to develop, and it developed over a great deal of suspicion. The American army at the beginning of the war included many officers who were diehard isolationists, uh, for instance, um, and who were deeply suspicious of the British and of Britain's obvious attempts to get America to join the war against Germany. Um, Britain was, in fact, reading uh, American diplomatic codes until America entered the war, at which point... Churchill sent a note off to uh, to Roosevelt, in which he said, "Listen, I, I have to tell you, your diplomatic codes are sort of easy to break. in fact, we've been breaking them now that we're uh, both on the same side of the war. I've told my people to stop doing that, but maybe you should you know change your codes. At the bottom of the note, by the way, was written, "Please burn after reading, and we historians are lucky that nobody followed that instruction, and the note survived. Um, there was a particularly high level of suspicion between. Uh, are of I don't know lack of respect between British and American generals. Uh, the British generals thought that the Americans uh, were amateurs, that they didn't know anything about strategy, uh, that American training was was weak. Uh, the British uh, Chief of General Staff, General uh, Allenbrook Brooke went off to see an American training exercise and came back saying they you know on the unit level they don't know what they're doing. And meanwhile, the uh, American military attache in in Egypt, a guy named Colonel uh, Bonner Fellers, who was uh, uh, essentially an overt spy on the British for the Americans. Uh, the British knew he was there, the British clocked him, but he was sending back information on how the British were doing. And he was scathing in his criticism of what amateurs the British were so and they had completely different strategic conceptions and so working out this relationship was was very difficult and slow and in the code breaking area the biggest there there definitely developed code breaking cooperation in fact it it, the the two sides began very carefully and hesitantly cooperating on code breaking even before america entered the war but the brits basically had the view that the americans don't know how to keep a secret and so they were very scared about telling the Americans too much because what the Americans knew, the Americans could inadvertently leak. Um, And just to connect up to something that you mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation, um, their fears got some real confirmation after the Battle of Midway in the Pacific. Um, The American victory at Midway was based entirely on code breaking. The Americans succeeded in breaking the Japanese naval code. They learned that the Japanese fleet was sailing to Midway to conquer this island in the middle of the Pacific. An American force headed out toward Midway, maintaining you know, silence. They got there just in time to bomb the Japanese uh, aircraft carriers. It was this tremendous victory. It turned the tide of the war in the Pacific. And several weeks later, a headline appears in an American newspaper saying that this victory was based on breaking Japanese codes. And of course, when uh, British representatives in Washington uh, informed London of this, the British code were understandably scandalized. Like, how can we work with these people? They they give everything away. They have no idea how to keep secrets.
1: Although, although you're you're not mentioning the uh, when I read that anecdote. Um, in In your book, I also noticed the punchline of this, which is even after all this the Japanese still didn't change their coats
0: yes which which by the way is a a, a a truly stunning note on on how poor Japanese intelligence was. they clearly did not have somebody in the states who was even reading um, <clears throat> it, i'm trying to remember what the phrase is in English uh, open sources you know, the newspapers, and sending back information about that to Japan. Um, that's how weak their intelligence had to be in the United States for them not to be aware of this major news story.
1: So I'd like to kind of end the interview by taking a step back and basically asking, what, first of all, you know, what, what drove you to write this book in the first place? And number two, you know, World War Two is 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 a much covered subject. World War II history is a much covered subject. But in the process of kind of doing the research, the archival research for this book, what do you kind of come out um, of this whole process with a new understanding of be it the region or intelligence or the Second World War? Kind of, you know, what, what are you kind of coming out of this process with a new understanding of?
0: Okay. Um, let me try to break it into parts. Um, I started because a good friend of mine Told me over lunch that at the beginning of the war, his father, a Palestinian Jew, uh, who was an officer in the British, was an officer in the British Army, and that the British Army wanted to evacuate his mother from Palestine because they thought that the families of officers were in danger because Palestine was at risk of being conquered. And even though I, I was aware that there was this kind of threat to what's today Israel, to the country where I live. Um, I hadn't realized how immediate it was, how how strong the fear was, how, how directly people felt that they were in danger. And so I went off to learn more about this. And in the process, I also learned much more about the whole North African front, the Middle East front, how absolutely critical it was in the course of the war. Um, for Remember for the first half of the war, North Africa was where uh, British and then Allied forces met the Germans and the Italians. So, while looking backwards, we remember most strongly the war in Europe. The first chapters of of the battle against the Axis took place in Africa. Um, the fate of everybody in North Africa and in the Middle East hung on the outcome of of those battles. So, just you know, as one implication of that. The Jewish community in Palestine, which eventually became the State of Israel, survived because the British managed to draw a line in the sand at El Alamein. Um, I can be talking to you today from Jerusalem because of that. Another thing, you know, you say the history of World War II has been very heavily covered, but intelligence information is very often kept secret for decades. And by the way, some of the documents I used for this were not even in the official archives. They were in the attics of the descendants of people who were involved in the story who I managed to track down. So there's levels upon levels of this story. Beneath every story we know, there's another story that changes its meaning. Um, In this case, just how critical intelligence was then to the war in the Middle East, just how critical to the intelligence victory was human mistakes. Um, you know, the Germans thought that they had what we today would call a, you know one hundred percent secure end-to-end encryption. But then they did the nineteen forties equivalent of leaving the password sitting on the desk. Right? You know, the 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 codes were only as good as the people who, who who used them. And the technology has changed vastly since then, but but that part is still true. And then I would add one more thing. Looking at how much the timing of particular events happened, how a message sent on this day and not a day earlier or a day later uh, affected the outcome of the war. In one case, a telegram that got lost in an office in Washington and only got sent a week later had a huge impact on the course of events. We tend to look back at history and see how it ended up and think that that end was inevitable. You know, the Allies won because they had better industry. They eventually created a a greater army. and All those things are true. But there were also moments where things could have very easily gone the other way, where nothing was quite that certain. Um, And where very clearly, if we want to understand the people living at the time, they certainly did not feel like a specific outcome was was in any way certain so in terms of understanding the war but also in terms of understanding getting into the souls of the people who lived through it it's very it's really essential to remember that nothing was was predetermined everything was was up for grabs and we're obviously very fortunate that things turned out the way that they did but there was no guarantee of that So I think with that, that's a good place to
1: end our interview with Gershom Gorenberg, author of War of Shadows, Codebreakers, Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East. Gershom, I actually have one more question for you, which is um, where can people find your work and what's next for you?
0: Uh, Well, um, the the book is available where books are sold, uh, including online. Um, You know, it's sold through all the Usual online places, Amazon and Book Depository and whatever. I, I I hope that your local bookstore has it as well, but I haven't been to every bookstore. But if not, you can get it uh, you can get it online very easily. Um, and I'm currently exploring topics for the next book, uh, most likely again getting into the issues of uh, of intelligence and um, And the stories that remained buried and the heroes whose names have remained unknown. Those are the people that fascinate me. Well, I look forward
1: to hearing more about the next about the next book. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural, and you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asian Books podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to. G- Support us, continue to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Xavier Naville, author of The Lettuce Diaries, How a Frenchman Found Gold Growing Vegetables in China. But before then, thank you so much, Kershaw, for joining me today.
0: Thank you so much.